Listeners should be advised that this episode includes discussion of suicide. If you or anyone you know is at risk for suicidal behavior, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 988. That's 988. As a parent, you know, of three children during the pandemic, you know, one of whom was just an infant still mm. when the pandemic hit. It was just sort of like everything colliding and making me fully realize, wait, this is what I researched and now I'm living this. Mm. Like I'm, I'm living and experiencing the stress and the, the like risk factors mm. that, you yeah. know, that I talk about. Hey everyone, welcome to House School, a new podcast from the Digital Futures Institute hosted by myself, Jen Lee, and my co-host, Joe Rena Ferry. Hey, Jen. Hey, Joe. Hey, everyone. Um, How School is a podcast about the issues that impact young people for the people who care about them and want to be able to ask better questions to connect than How School. And that need for connection has never felt more urgent than it does right now in the context of what has been described as a current youth mental health crisis. And to help us navigate this difficult topic, we've invited Teachers College professor Cindy Huang. Her recent work has looked at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and rising racism on the mental health of Asian American parents. And she studies mental health issues for immigrant and ethnic minority youth. Thanks for joining us, Cindy. Hi, Joe. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All right, let's dive in. I'm I'm just going to be real here right off the top and say that as a parent, navigating the mental and emotional health of my family and finding support has been a big part of the last few years. And I know I'm not alone. Both the CDC and the Office of the Surgeon General have each released reports within this past year describing a crisis in youth mental health. So this crisis was already underway before the pandemic, but studies have suggested the pandemic has exacerbated the situation. Young people dealing with serious mental health issues and teen suicide have been showing significant increases. And Cindy, your own work has shown that while the impact of worsening mental health and the pandemic is felt across youth identity categories, some youth are facing higher risk based on things like their identity or immigration status. For example, Asian American youth and their families have dealt with an increase in racism and racial violence and the sense of fear that goes along with it. So are we understanding this correctly? Is that how you would frame the problem or would you put it a different way? No, I think that perfectly captures um, the complexity of youth mental health. You know, I think so much of what you just said is true, where mental health issues were always present. But I think what the pandemic has done is it's brought it to the forefront, you know, whereas people, maybe parents before wanted to, you know, maybe weren't aware of how prevalent things were, or maybe weren't aware of what some signs may be. I think now it's being talked about. Um, it's being discussed at schools by teachers, you know, other, and, and just in the media. And so people are now realizing how prevalent it is. And, and even beyond that, I think, there are certain populations and certain risk factors that place people at heightened risk for mental health issues um, coming to the surface. Um, and a lot of those have to do with race um, and you know, or immigration status. And so, you know, as you said, COVID brought to light 
the discrimination and racism that exists for, say, Asian American populations. Um, certainly with COVID and the pandemic, you know, earlier days, it being called names like the China virus by the U.S. government, you know, those certainly have exacerbated anti-Asian hate crimes that we saw, you know, rising across the country and really even the world. So if you take that, you know, really those stories brought to light some of the experiences that are every day for a lot of Asian Americans that were experiencing them. And I think part of the issue has also been that people are now getting language on how to talk about mental health issues, how to talk about these contextual factors that are risk factors for mental health. So for example, we know there is lots of research saying experiencing discrimination and racism has Mm -hmm. links to not just mental health, but also physical health problems. Mm -hmm. Chronic experiences of discrimination is actually linked with increased heart disease, hypertension, um, you know, chronic stress. And so what this is really doing is giving people the language, giving media the language. And I think, you know, to take that back to youth, parents now have this language and are thinking, you know, about themselves and their experiences with their own mental health, maybe as a result of the pandemic, maybe it was there before, but now then seeing and thinking about their its impact on their own children. Yeah, yeah. I I really appreciate sort of that um, in your work and in the work of others, just examining how some of these social factors that aren't necessarily always named um, in sort of like individual psychological um, things that people are facing is now being included in that discourse around, you know, our, our individual mental health. Do you think this framing of it being a crisis is sort of an accurate way to describe what's going on with youth mental health. I mean, we're taking these yeah. words from like a New York Times did a big article about it that, that we came across when we were researching for this episode and, and other pieces as well, um, including those reports um, from the CDC yeah. and the, you know, the Surgeon right. General. What do you think about that? Sure. Framing? You know, that's such a great question, because even as you're asking me now, I'm thinking, wait, it's not a one-time thing. This has been actually the trends for youth mental health has been trending upward for decades, right? So there are studies that have looked at, you know, generational differences in depression and mental health and stress. And we know that, you know, today's generation compared to um, the generations from decades ago have higher rates of depression. And, you know, I think for many years, it was, you know, people have been trying to figure out why. So I wouldn't say that it's a crisis, more that it's hit a point where you can't look away anymore. I also want to add to that, though, that there is a real, um, that you know, despite what I said about it being a trend, um, there were real things about the pandemic that exacerbated these risk factors, right? So yes, the discrimination and um, hate crimes against Asian Americans was one of them. Um, but that's that's not all. You know, we know from research that youth, you know, that youth maybe who had predispositions for mental health problems by being isolated and locked at home and not being able to go out and socialize for some that really exacerbated the problem and brought to the surface mental health problems that maybe wouldn't have come up to the surface you know until much later or if at all 
Yeah, and I think, you know, part of why this topic can feel overwhelming is just like, it's easy to feel fear about the young people in our life when they're struggling and to have worry and concern. I think I felt a big mix of emotions as I was reading about how other families were experiencing these challenges too. I felt like the part of me that worried that it was maybe a personal feeling of my own as a parent, that part was almost relieved. Like, okay, maybe I'm not the only one, you know? But then immediately the reality of how many families and young people were struggling just also brought a lot of sorrow kind of like close behind it. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Joe? I mean, I can relate to how challenging it can be, you know, even as an adult to have conversations with my own parents about mental health. Um, I'm not a parent myself, but, you know, uh, just as for me as a person, there's just a deep feeling that I want my parents, my family to see me as being okay for them not to worry about me. Um, even if it's not something serious, but maybe even especially when it is something serious, there's that sort of sense around that. And then broadly, yeah. when I think about, you know, the, the issue of, of youth mental health, I feel a sense of anger and fear about just how completely we're failing to care for young people right now. So (laughs) that said, I I, I guess we want to know how you're feeling, Cindy, um, when you think about this crisis in mental health, what emotions does it bring up for you? Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, really kind of echo with both of what you're saying. I think as an adult, you know, as a as a psychologist, right, I'm of course self-aware and, you know, can deal with mental health issues when they hit, you know, and I think and when the pandemic hit and we were all shut down for what feels like still, still, you know, parts of it is still happening as a parent, you know, of three children during the pandemic, you know, one of whom was like just an infant still mm. when the pandemic hit. It was just sort of like everything colliding and making me fully realize wait, this is what I researched and now I'm living this. Mm. Like I'm, I'm living and experiencing the stress and the, the like risk factors mm. that, you yeah. know, that I talk about, um, you know, and, and just to share on a personal level, like it, you know, it was really hard. Mm. You know, I had two kids who were old enough to be in elementary school, mm. but young enough, kindergarten and first grade where they were still learning how to read. There I was on maternity leave when, when, you know, with an infant and also suddenly helping facilitate school for my kids. That is also then compounded with the stress of not knowing what the heck coronavirus is, right? Especially those of us in New York City, we were just locked down and it was scary. You hear sirens, you couldn't go outside. Mm So then, you know, it's no wonder that you see mental health issues in kids. It's not mental health issues in in the way that kids are coming to you and saying, I have anxiety or I'm depressed, right? Um, Not all kids, even teens, have that type of language. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the awareness that needs to happen, the self-awareness, but then there's also the language that goes along with that. And I think oftentimes that's what is missing is that language. Um, 
but they feel something, right? And whether that something is being felt from us as parents, you know, giving off an uncertainty, because I think that was one of the biggest exacerbators of stress among parents is, is school going to be open? Are they going to be closed? We're in school, they're going to be exposure. And then next week, at any Mm -hmm. given point, Mm -hmm. they're staying home, Mm -hmm. right? And um, completely just kills your, you know, any kind of control you feel like you have in your life, whether it's, you know, things we took for granted pre-pandemic, like I can set my own deadlines and meet this deadline. And I think so much of what I feel is actually first recognizing that I've gotten desensitized to it because we have had to live with a level of uncertainty and ambiguity. When I stop to really think about how I feel, I do get angry about it, you know, and I don't think that it's necessarily because I feel like we're failing kids. Um, but this anger in general of people wanting to kind of just move forward from the pandemic, like things are normal. And, and I think maybe that that's where it relates to, you know, youth mental health. It's like, and where I do appreciate, you know, the attention that the CDC, that the attorney general, right. And all the media has, has been, you know, sort of labeled this moment as a crisis because it is, a crisis in the sense that we we can't ignore it but by labeling it we are giving the language to for all of us to be able to talk about it as an issue we can't deny it being a problem and i think that makes all the difference in the world totally and you know one thing i heard you mention before was the way that sometimes the challenges that we're missing language or vocabulary to describe how we're feeling um And also another one I'm thinking about is that sometimes our, like the process of decline in how we're doing is so gradual that we actually don't feel it happening and we don't realize how far we've drifted from our own kind of baseline. And so I know a lot of us would love to hear from you if there are any risk factors or signs that you can think of um, that maybe the young people in our lives are struggling that we can be on the lookout for, like. What, what should we be watching for or noticing? My big thing that I always talk about in terms of mental health signs is to look at behaviors. Behaviors are the first signs of mental health problems. Mm. And what's nice about understanding and looking at behaviors is they're right in front of you. You mm. don't need the words. For example, symptoms of depression could be things like extreme fatigue, right? sleeping more than usual, sleeping less than usual, um, just to add in the complicated Mm -hmm. matters of mental health. depends on the person, right? Um, Appetite, decrease or increase in appetite, right? And we're talking about, you know, significant changes, but even incremental changes Mm -hmm. can also be a sign of something, you know, somebody, it's actually not as common to have somebody immediately go from, you know, who who's depressed to go from perfectly healthy habits to suddenly not, right? Like that's not mm-hmm. typical. What you usually would see is a gradual change over time. We're talking about, you know, couple weeks to a few months, you mm-hmm. know, but sort of the big thing is pay attention to the patterns and themes of your own signs, but also those of your children and the people around you. Well, I was just going to say that you you made it 
sound challenging in that, um, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, these sort of symptoms aren't making it easy for us in the sense that they're gradual like that. But it sounds like what you're saying is to look for patterns that continue over a period of say a couple weeks or so. And then if you notice that there's a change in someone's basic routines over that amount of time, you know, maybe if or it's in there, I would say even longer. If we're talking about diagnostic criteria, right? It's kind of like a minimum of two weeks. You know, mm -hmm. I would say two weeks is not that much time. You know, most people, most kids are showing signs over time. Part of the point of this entire podcast is for us to learn how to ask better questions when we speak to young people. Um, besides just the standard house school, which is every ones um, often go to. So what advice would you give about how to bring up the topic of their mental health with the kids and the teens? It seems like it could be kind of awkward to be from like, how's your day? To like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it is really awkward. It starts as simply as making the attempt, mm -hmm. right? So I think making the attempt to talk to them, even before that, you can watch and observe behaviors and behaviors can go really far. So let's say you're noticing your child is more withdrawn than usual. So you start noticing your child is more withdrawn and then comes the asking, right? Mm -hmm. How do you ask? <laughs> sure, you can start with house school, you know, but I, I always like to tell parents um, specific questions will elicit specific answers. Who questions? What questions? What are you learning in blank? You mentioned this friend. How how are they doing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or what have you, have you been talking to them lately? And then keep and then listening. Mm. So much parents can do so much by just listening to what their kids are saying. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm totally guilty of this myself. Like you can't help it when your kids give you an answer. You feel like you have to teach. Everything feels like you're supposed to be teaching them something, or mm. like they said something with an attitude, and you're supposed to tell them, "Hey, watch it. Watch that tone." Right. So, and it's not to say you don't do that. It's to say that give yourself a few moments where you let certain things go, like the tone <laughs> that you don't like, or the mm -hmm. attitude that they've, you know, the, the gloominess that they're sort of showing you. But look at what they're doing. Maybe your kid is gloomy, but they're staying in the room and answering your questions. Mm -hmm. That's a sign. They're engaged in this conversation, even if they're not smiling about it. Those are the moments then to kind of like keep it light and just keep it going, right? Kids, especially teens, shut down when they feel or fear judgment, punishment, right? Like mm -hmm. something, you know, nagging, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And that's when they shut down. Maybe they're not feeling so great. They don't have the words to articulate, I don't feel so great. It takes a very kind of conscientious young person to say, mom, I don't feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, it also takes a certain level of not feeling good to then go to your parent and say, I don't feel good. Right. Because we all know how to explain away our physical symptoms. Oh, my tummy hurts. You have no problem telling your parent, your tummy hurts, your head hurts, your arm hurts. Mm -hmm. But this kind of non-existent discomfort that's associated with anxiety or depression or just like scary thoughts mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um scary experiences right social experiences social interactions are are some of the 
biggest ways that um, kids feel, especially teens feel like, let's say they're being bullied or they've, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody was harassing them or, or, you know, they experienced discrimination, but they didn't have the words to to say like, oh, this is the, this is discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it may be, they may feel alone. They may feel ashamed. And that shame is such a big piece of what keeps kids from communicating. Mm-hmm. And so as the adults in their lives, we have to recognize that and understand that there are lots of reasons why people may not share. Maybe they don't know how to share and give them and create the opportunities for them. Okay, so just to recap on the kind of individual personal side, um, some tips you've given us are to pay attention to behaviors and to ask concrete, specific questions, to engage and then listen. And those are all, those are all really great tips. Yeah. And, and I just want to add to, to some of those um, things. Right? So mm-hmm. one of the things that you can think about from, uh, for parents to look for, especially in younger children, but also the, there's a cultural component to it. Uh, we call it somatic symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Certain people experience their mental health issues physically mm-hmm. um could be stomach pain right any anxiety and then like sort of stomach issues go hand in hand i think they're you know or like headaches because of tension and if you're wondering about something and you're feeling like mm, my instincts are telling me something's not right it's better to ask your child a doctor someone it's better to ask than to brush it aside I really appreciate um, your advice for how we can kind of um, get some tools to do this interpersonally. And I, I'm wondering also though, since we are seeing this as a trend, right? And we're in your work also brings in factors that are beyond the family relationship, which as you mentioned, you know, these, these closer relationships are big factors, but how can we sort of look collectively you know, as a, as a society, mm-hmm. although <laughs> I don't know if I can say as a society, but together, how can we do this together? <laughs> you know, sure. considering that it's happening, um, across, um, you know, not just in individual yeah. units, but, but collectively we're, we're facing this problem. How can we collectively look to, to work on it, to kind of improve the situation for young people? Yeah. And, and that's, I think the, the greatest question of all because there you know if you stop to think about all the influences right that all the things that contribute to youth mental health it does go so much bigger than just the parents and even teachers it, you know one of the biggest things we can do is to help understand these other risk factors understand the experiences of others because inevitably those people's experiences impact our children's experiences and vice versa like this is your friend your friend is of this particular race they may experience this these are things that they have to worry about these are things that you don't have to worry about and these are things that you do have to worry about right so there's all you know just having that language and understanding appreciation of differences is one way that we can help our own kids to you know eliminate discrimination for example since we talked about that mm-hmm. earlier on if we're compassionate for other people and teach our kids to be compassionate towards other people and themselves we create a totally different 
society. We create a totally different world. And I think that sounds really, you know, like rainbows and, and unicorns and all of that. But there's ways that we can do that, right? We can make individual experiences easier for our children by learning the language, learning the experiences of other people, helping our children learn the language around their own experiences, their friends' experiences, being compassionate. Mm -hmm. So it seems small, but you can start these things at the individual level to hopefully one day see larger change. Two of the things that I heard um, were that it's helpful to give people the language to name things when it comes to our individual experiences. We talked about that earlier in the conversation, and I know I've experienced that myself when it comes to mental health. And it's also helpful to give people the language to name things that might not be about their experience, but are about these broader issues in society that they may or may not be facing themselves, whether it comes to like racism and discrimination that they might not personally face or, you know, other identity categories, you know, gender, sure. sexuality, gender right? identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think ultimately the things that, you know, we're, we're talking about the things that we can do is to help kids become more self-aware, right? As adults, we can learn to be more self-aware and then for kids to become more self-aware. Um, Cause of, you know, what does it really mean to be aware of people's other people's experiences? Well, it's, awareness that these experiences exist, mm -hmm. you know, and the fact that you're aware of it when you do see it happening or you experience it yourself, it won't feel as isolating. Mm -hmm. It won't feel as shameful. You will have better, uh, you know, ability to, to, to know that it's, you know, you haven't done anything. You can talk to other people about it because you're not alone. And ultimately that's going to improve mental health. Mm -hmm. We both appreciate you so much today, Cindy. Thanks for being with us, for being in the conversation and um, sharing with us how you're feeling, what, so much about your own experience and some really practical tips too. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. I know we could talk so much longer, but <laughs> there's always too much to say about this. Totally. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to Cindy's lab at Teachers College, as well as a transcript of our conversation on the episode page linked in our show notes. This episode talked about youth mental health more broadly, but if you have a young person in your life who's at risk of suicide, we're including a link to a great episode of NPR's Life Kit in our show notes as well, How to Help a Child at Risk of Suicide. We recommend listening to learn more. You can also call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline to receive support for yourself or someone you care about. It's available 24-7 by dialing 988. On next week's episode, we talk to Sonia Douglas about the attacks on school districts and teachers in the name of critical race theory and a groundbreaking new pre-K to 12 interdisciplinary Black Studies curriculum for New York City public schools. You know, I didn't know exactly what it would look like at the time, but I knew that there was a need to really bring together people who were, you know, researchers who were passionate about Black education, of connecting um, the scholar, the scholarship of our elders, right, and those who've kind of been toiling in the margins and bringing that work more into the mainstream to help inform education research more broadly. And, you know, I feel like things have coalesced nicely in this moment to where 
you know, there is a hunger and desire for better understanding um, Black education, of understanding issues of race and racism and how they show up in schools and what we can do about it. Follow House School wherever you podcast and leave a rating and review to support the show. House School is created, hosted, and produced by myself, Jorena Ferry, and Jen Lee, with audio production and original music by Billy Collins. House School is a production of the Digital Futures Institute at Teachers College, Columbia University. You can follow the Digital Futures Institute on Instagram or Twitter at TC Digital Future. More soon.